Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Mafedon. Thanks for tuning in. This week, a mural of the great civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., is making its way through Boston to honor his life and legacy. Take a look. In Upham's Corner, community members put their coloring skills to work at the kickoff of the week-long Martin Luther King Jr. mural event, hosted by the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. One colored marker at a time, they filled in the mural, bringing it to life. The importance of um, what Dr. King meant was all about unity, everyone working together, everyone um, having better economical chance, everyone having the same playing field. That's why it's so important we're here today um, with all kinds of backgrounds, all kind of um, religious beliefs and everyone um, just, you know, um, making this mural, doing their part to beautify our community. The mural, which portrays themes of social justice, unity and equality, was created by teen artists from Artists for Humanity. It will continue on to several locations within the greater Boston area to be completed at the MFA Boston on January 16th. MLK gave us a new idea of just like unity and justice and that's really important because like we're all equal, we should all treat each other as equal and you know, we should all be fair to each other. Although MLK's dream of equality and unity still resonates as his legacy 60 years later, State Representative Russell Holmes believes that we haven't made enough progress. Dr. King's dream was that his children would be seen equally as white children. And as we think about that fight today, that hasn't ended. You still think and know that our black families are values are $8 versus $247,000 for white families. His dream has, has seen a lot of progress, but there still is much to be realized. Something delicious this way comes. The Roxbury community got a first taste of flavors from the African diaspora Thursday at Nubian Markets. New flavors and dreams came to life at Nubian Market sneak peek in Roxbury on Thursday. The first look at the new grocery market and African food hub welcomed a full house of the community, and they were all eager to see what's been cooking on Washington Street. It was really good. It felt healthy, felt light, but also very savory, so really enjoyed it. And uh, will you be back once the store is officially Absolutely. <laughs> I will be back, yeah. <laughs> in our community, uh, we have a long history of, of not necessarily eating the right thing. Um, and, but it also comes from a history where we didn't have a choice of what we could and what we could not eat. And now we live in a time where we actually do have choice. The creators of the store, Ishmael Samad and Yusuf Yassin, wanted to bring a taste of the African diaspora to Roxbury, as well as create a grocery market with the freshest locally grown produce and freshly prepared meals. One of the best kept secrets about West Africa, or Africa in general, is the food. The way we eat back home, very natural, very organic, and the flavors are to die for. Not only we don't have like one type of flavor, but we have a variety and they're usually all good. They hope the community will use this as a place to celebrate the unique, unrivaled history of Nubian Square. Ishmael is an experienced zero-waste chef, and Yusuf is an entrepreneur and culinary director. And together, they came up with the idea to bring African tastes and fresh foods to the Roxbury Hub. Nubian Markets presents an opportunity to 
remove some of those barriers uh, and having ownership of shelf space that's that's owned by us we can now create a clear pathway to have the culture that we want in our communities to show up in an unflinching way and that's kind of like what it is for me like we can be unapologetic about who we are we can really claim our space and say this is what we want to do and then the community can react and say Ooh, about time or you didn't get it right nubian markets will open in early 2023 and the people are ready to enjoy not all heroes wear capes, but Boston is lucky to have someone who does. The man who calls himself Basilisk takes his job seriously, and he may have one of the biggest hearts in the city. Everyone can use a little bit of help sometimes. Whether that help comes from police, health care, or from a stranger, John Henry Gallus is determined to be a part of that aid, and his commitment to helping his community is plain to see. He's known by many names, John, Basilisk, and the Dark Knight of Dorchester. John led BNN News through what he does to safeguard the city of Boston. It's not the mask that makes a hero or the badge. It's the hero that makes a mask or the badge. And I think we should all try to understand that. What we ha what's the best part of the hero is the sacrifice and the heart and to put the needs of others before themselves. Not everyone appreciates John's work, but he doesn't let that derail him from his mission, extending a helping hand to those in need. I just remember um, when I went through this, um, I have two choices, either be part of the solution or part of the problem. I always seek to be that solution. And even though the first part, the, the problem that just comes naturally, it's how you react to it that's very important. And for me, I always remain positive. He spends his patrols walking around, checking in on people who may need assistance, as well as helping local police with traffic control. Um, I think people that patrol are like really good because they can like they're good for the community and like they help people like get along with their day. It's like sometimes all a person needs is a hug. He loves the work he does and he's committed to continue helping in all the ways he can. And this work doesn't go unnoticed. I enjoy pe seeing people help other people, you know, if it's just holding the door for someone or, you know, just saying good morning, you know. People need that. Kindness. There's a lot of bad stuff going on in the neighborhood, so I guess we can use people like him, you know, bring a little laughter and cheer to people. In the words of Batman, a hero can be anyone. For Dorchester, there's the dark night. City Life Vita Urbana was back in Chelsea on Monday to stand in solidarity with three immigrant families fighting evictions from landlord grid management. The fight for affordable housing rages on in East Boston. Outside the Chelsea District Court early Monday morning, immigrant tenants of color from the East Boston Grid Management Tenant Association gathered to oppose no-fault evictions and rent tenant increases. The 14-unit, three-story apartment at the center of the fight was acquired in 2017 by Grid Management. Upon purchase, the management company promptly delivered eviction letters to all tenants, as well as rent increases up to $1,000 for families who refused to leave. It's a burden for residents, many of whom are elderly or disabled. Estamos este, 
tratando de que, de que no... What's unfair is that uh, Great Management is trying to raise my rent by $1,000. It's currently unsustainable for me and my family. We are older uh, adults. I'm retired. My wife is the only one that works. And currently I support my two uh, granddaughters who are sick. We just, I just want a uh, fair contract that will allow me to stay in my home and for a rent increase that is sustainable for me and my family. Rent control supporters believe the lack of empathy from many management companies is fueling their greed. People all over Boston are facing these unreasonable demands from greedy landlords, um, unreasonable rent increases, no repairs, and there is no understanding that these people deserve to stay in their homes and there is no effort on behalf of these landlords to hold collective negotiation bargains with them. Yet grid management has failed to sign collective bargaining agreements for its East Boston tenants. And the result is more residents being pushed further away from their homes, a feeling which may reopen old wounds. City Life Vita Urbana insists rent control is the only way to hold landlords accountable and keep tenants in their homes. So these families are facing a $1,000 rent increase, right? This is just an example of what's happening in East Boston and across the city and across the state of Massachusetts. And it's terrible that these families, you know, they've already faced displacement from their home countries, El Salvador and Guatemala, because of the violence of the Civil War. Now they're facing displacement again, fighting displacement again, right? And fighting for their homes, fighting for their right to stay in their homes. That's why we need rent control, right? Because rent control is going to require big corporations like Greater Management to not increase rents at high dramatic rates, right? These tenants, they're, they're, they want to pay rent. They want to live there, right? But not with a dramatic rent increase of $1,000 because then they won't be able to afford rent. We had the honor of having a few members of City Life Vita Urbana in studio to discuss the ongoing housing crisis. We are joined by Johnny Gomez Pereira and Kimberly Landa Verde, both lifelong residents of the area, to talk about the important work that they're doing. City Life Vita Urbana is a community organization committed to fighting for social and economic justice and equity through grassroots power. They can often be found at eviction protests and civil rights protests, and their work for the community is always appreciated. Take a look. And I'd, I'd love to start with the recent win that you, your organization had, uh, City Life Vita Urbana. So Monday's protest outside of the Chelsea uh, trial court there, you were able to negotiate the three-year contract for the Grid Management Tenant Association with no more than a 3% increase on their rent. So that's so fabulous that you were able to do that. Thank you. I'd love to start the conversation talking about the housing uh, crisis that we're finding ourselves in right now. What started the affordable housing crisis and what factors are intensifying the problems that we're seeing right now? Yeah, I could speak to some of that. So I would say what started the affordable um, housing crisis is sort of the compounding of racist policies that have been implemented throughout the history of the United States. So we're, I'm talking about things like redlining, which led to historic disinvestment in communities um, like East Boston and Chelsea. Um, so what that has created currently is a sort of rent gap. These are where um, communities of color immigrants have been able to find affordable housing. And because the market or the rent in those areas is cheaper, um, that creates a bigger, it creates a bigger rent gap for speculative investors to come in buy these properties at a lower rate, given its proximity to Boston, 
and then jack up uh, rent increase, jack up the rent um, to market rate, which is oftentimes triple or double what current renters are paying in communities like East Boston. Wow. And what are some of the consequences of not having enough affordable housing in the city? Yeah, those consequences are devastating. So what we've found, um, what City Life Vidarbana has found, is that two-thirds of the evictions that are happening in the city of Boston are in communities of color. So that affects primarily BIPOC communities, right? Black, Indigenous, people of color um, in East Boston. And they're the ones that are bearing the brunt of uh, this eviction crisis. Kim, I'd love to bring you into the conversation. Can you talk a little bit about the work that City Life Vita Urbana is doing to help communities that are facing this housing crisis right now? Yeah, so City Life is very hands-on. Um, we have our weekly meetings on Tuesdays. They're in English, Wednesdays they're in Spanish, and we they're still on, uh, virtual, so they're on Zoom. But in these meetings, tenants can come in and learn their basic tenant rights, our our fighting strategy, um, the way that we use lawyers and protests to come and uh, help tenants negotiate collectively um, to win their cases. And they also have the opportunity to talk to lawyers at the end of our meetings and have those free one-on-one -on -one consultations, especially if they're about to start the eviction process so they can become more informed. And we also have a housing hotline where they can reach us and receive uh, more information about our weekly meetings and also chat with organizers about their cases. Mm. And speaking of the evictions, uh, what rights do tenants have who are facing evictions? We've seen a lot of these stories of uh, tenants who are protesting, trying to keep their homes. Yeah, so what we like to remind our, our viewers and our, our tenants when they are coming to our meetings is that only a judge can evict them. And when they receive that initial eviction notice or that notice to quit, we like to remind them that that does not mean that they have to leave or the set of dates that they receive there does not mean that they have to leave. Only a judge can evict them and they have... Uh, that receiving that letter is only the start of the process, and they have rights al right all along the way. So, and what are some key changes that need to happen in the city in order to stabilize the housing market and keep Boston residents from spending you know, most of their hard-earned paychecks on housing? Yeah, so I would say the biggest step that we can take as a state, as the Commonwealth, the biggest step that the Commonwealth could take is lifting the ban on rent control. With the lifting of the ban on rent control, communities have the option um, to opt into rent control, and that would sort of provide a cap on how much uh, landlords and uh, property developers are able to raise prices on tenants. We see right now, as I mentioned previously, with like the rent gap, landlords and property developers are buying uh, properties that were undervalued and they're taking out lar larger mortgages. They need to recoup those costs, and the way they do that is by jacking up the prices on renters. With a rent control policy, um, that would prevent, you know, that would limit the amount of uh, money that could be asked for in rent. Um, and we also need more paths to homeownership, right, to build mm -hmm. equity for our communities of color. Um, so some policies that would help address that are the Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, also known as TOPA, which would give tenants the right to submit an offer, an initial offer, um, to a landlord who's trying to sell a building with multiple units. Hmm. Very good information to know. 
Um, and then this question for either one of you, how can the community get more involved in order to move this cause in the right direction? So they could follow our social media. They can search us up at City Life Vida Urbana. Um, and there they can receive a lot of updates about our weekly meetings, our actions, um, and other events that we're hosting to, to spread more information. Sometimes a lot of our communities um, learn through word of mouth, so it's uh, good to spread uh, our social media and get more involved that way. I would just add that um, subscribing to our Action Alert email will let you know when we're having rallies and protests in different parts of Boston. We have tenant associations as far down as Mattapan and as far north as East Boston. And we are doing some organizing in Malden and Chelsea. So there are plenty of opportunities for viewers that want to get involved or um, potential renters um, in the area. And we also work with small homeowners as well um, who are facing foreclosure. If they're interested in learning more about City Life, as Kim said, connecting with us on social media, but also subscribing to our Action Alert um, email so that they know when we're having our actions around the Boston area. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that information. Uh, Kimberly Landerverde and Johnny Gomez Pereira, community organizers with City Life Vida Urbana, thank you both so much for your time and thank you for fighting the fight for our, our residents here in the city. Thank you, you for so having much. us. Thank you for having us. Coming soon to Boston is Jenny Loves Me, a one-man show written and performed by Michael Levin. It's about the life of his mother, their relationship, and the adversity she faced as an immigrant. Michael is a prolific New York Times best-selling author and an accomplished songwriter and trained tenor. The one-night-only show serves as a fundraiser for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and we're excited to share the details with you in our conversation with Michael. Enjoy. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Faith, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, of course. Absolutely. So your one-man show, Jenny Loves Me, based on your mother's life story, is returning to Boston next Thursday, January 19th at the Huntington at the Calderwood Pavilion. I'd love to start with what motivated you to create this show? Oh, sure. Thank you for asking. Uh, my mom passed in 2018. And about a year after she passed, I started to hear my voice in her head again. And it was just the kind of little complaints that mom would make. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's mom. She's back. This is wonderful. Because I, I, you know, I'm 64. She was my friend for 60 years. And I, I, I wrote a manuscript about, I write books for a living. I wrote a manuscript about her life. I sent it to a friend of mine who had sold one of my novels to Disney years ago. He said, this needs to be a one-man show. As soon as I heard him, I knew he was right. And that's how the show got started. Wonderful. And can you tell us a little bit about your mother's life? Sure. My mom was born in 1936 in Eisden, Belgium. It's a tiny little coal mining town in the north of Belgium. Her parents had uh, moved from Poland to escape the poverty and the tough life there. Three years later, World War II broke out. They were running. They ran through France. They were smuggled into Spain. Uh, they found their way to Havana. They spent six years in Havana. And then finally, they got to the United States. And uh, once they got here, my, my grandfather continually sort of reestablished himself, reinvented himself as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, as a factory worker, whatever he had to do. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, in 1968, when I was 10, uh, he was murdered in a robbery. Mm. And then my grandmother died four years later of a broken heart. 
Uh, my, my sisters and I were a bit of a trial for my mom as teenagers growing up in all this kind of craziness. Uh, her marriage fell apart. And despite all of that, she is the, I say is because she's still alive for me. Mm. She's the most positive, upbeat person I've ever met. Her attitude was always pull up your socks. Let's get on with it. Um, and she never, ever quit. So her story is all about resilience and bouncing back and just moving forward and family and love. And the message, the audience is, uh, we were the first show to open in Boston after the pandemic, the first live theater of any kind. Wow. The audience, the audiences love the show because of the message of resilience. And they just, they just really respond. It's sort of very appropriate. The message is appropriate for our times. It's not a downer. It sounds like very depressing, the things that I just said, but it's really fun in addition to the, you know, the challenging moments. No, your mother definitely sounds like a strong and such a phenomenal woman. So um, it's very moving. So in addition to acting in this performance, you also wrote and performed 11 original songs. Can you talk a little bit about the process of writing the music and which of the songs is your, your favorite? Sure. So we rehearsed the show all through the pandemic at the Calderwood. We had a government mandated audience of seven because you had the director, you had the technic, technical guy and me, and then so you could have seven people in the room. And then after every performance, I'd sort of sit on the stage and we'd do a Q&A and, you know, what, uh, what worked, what didn't work. And at some point, somebody said, this needs songs, this needs music. I'm like, whoa, he's right. So <laughs> I looked at the script and I sort of said, oh my gosh, where am I going to find songs here? But there's so many moments that do lend themselves to songs. So I just started pounding them out. I've written songs and performed them, you know, for a long time, something I do. And you asked which was the favorite. Uh, my mom, uh, whenever my grandfather, we talk about this in the show, whenever my grandfather had to tell my mom that things were about to change, that they were on their way again, that they had to leave the country, whatever it was, you know, they spoke every language of Europe, of Western and Eastern Europe, because of all the moving that they had to do. He would always tell her in Spanish. He would say, chica, las cosas han cambiado. Hmm. which is Spanish for girl, things have changed. So, you know, <laughs> and she's like, okay, and off they go. So the song is called Cuban Lullaby, and it's about the sadness my grandfather must have felt or that he wasn't able to provide stability for his, for his children and the courage that it took to just keep moving instead of saying, well, maybe it'll be okay, because it was never going to be okay. So that's, you know, it's... It, uh, Chica las cosas han cambiado, that's what my grandpa told my mom. Aquí estamos en el nuevo estado, don't know if we'll be here long. Another day, another country, we won't stop until we're free. Say goodbye to friends and neighbors, we'll meet more across the sea, and so on. So that's the, that's Cuban lullaby. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm so glad that we got that little sneak peek just now. Um, and as a man, I'm sure it was a very unique experience for you to step into your mother's shoes in the telling of her story. What things did you learn about her and about being a woman during the time that she lived? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. The first thing is that I'll never understand from the inside. The thing is that I was raised by my mother uh, and uh, uh, I have two sisters, no brothers. Um, uh, I had a very powerful relationship with her mother, so I was sort of raised by women. And I don't know if that gave me any more insight, but the, the thing, the, there are a couple things that come away from for me. One is that I think women see things in sort of a 360-degree 
perspective instead of just sort of the narrow, what's the next thing to do, which is how I look at things as a guy. Hmm. And the second is that, um, you know, my mom uh, lived in five countries before she was 10 years old, spoke 10 languages. And in 1965, the only job she could get, and she had a Barnard education, Ivy League education, the only job she could get was as a translator for the United Nations as a part-time job, hmm. which was bad. But there's another song in it in the show called What Mom Could Have Been. And uh, it just asks the question, you know, what if mom had the opportunities uh, to, that women and that everybody has today? What if she had those opportunities with, with those experiences, those gifts? Uh, this is a very special performance in that it's also serving as a fundraiser for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And you will be running uh, for the 10th time in the Boston Marathon. Can you talk a little bit about your connection to Dana-Farber and why it was important for you to run again? Well, there's something about the Boston Marathon that once you, you know, once you're involved with it, you just can't stop. And uh, it, I mean, the, the race is so beloved in Boston. It's unlike any race in any other city in the world, the way Bostonians and everybody along the course uh, feels of us, feel so possessive. I was in the 2013 race in the bombing. I was too slow to be, you know, to be uh, w w you know, present when the, when the bombs hit. I was still back in Newton. You just, you, just, you just feel so much love for it. And there's nothing, my grandmother, uh, my mom's mom passed away from breast cancer, but it was really a broken heart after all the losses. So I just feel a very, very strong tie to Dana-Farber. I've had the privilege of raising $195,000 for them so far. I'm hoping to go over the 200000 maybe far over it, with this, perform with, this, with this run. And so the show is a benefit. It's a, it's a sanctioned benefit for Dana-Farber. And anyone who uh, wants to come and make a donation, if uh, you can go to michaelrunsboston.com, and uh, even if you can't see the show, well, it's definitely an inspiring message all around. And for our viewers who would like to see the show, how can they go ahead and do so and uh, support your endeavors with the marathon? Sure. Uh, it, you can just show up. It's at the Calderwood, which is in the South End. It's uh, this Thursday, uh, January, July, January 19 at 7.30 p.m. You can reserve a seat uh, at Eventbrite. And, you, and uh, you can also, as I said, you can go to Michael Runs Boston if you want to support uh, this uh, slowly moving geezer <laughs> as he makes his way from Hopkins to Boston. And that's, about, and that's about the size of it. Listen, there's plenty of life and vitality in you. So Michael Levin, composer and performer of Jenny Loves Me, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Faith. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon.